Hey everyone, welcome to this bonus Behind the Goats episode of Helpful Goat Presents, in which members and friends of Helpful Goat Gaming get together to chat about Dungeons and & Dragons and games in general. It's a chance to get to know the players behind the characters you know and love, so we hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Also, as usual, this podcast might very well contain adult language, so please beware if you are going to listen to it around children. Alright. Let's get to it. Yeah, I was thinking to myself, um, remembering listening to Andy and Darcy's conversation, that it's a shame that we can't do this in the same room, because I think that there was something about them having that conversation in person that was really um, kind of cool. I absolutely agree. That was like one thing that really struck me was uh, it uh, it wasn't even so much the timbre of their interaction because I've seen them talk in person too. It was, um, I think, just that uh, you're less likely to talk over people and the, the interchange is easier. Yeah, absolutely. And there was, a, I think, a, like an intimacy to to hearing them kind of talk and, and even just to like hearing like the, the mic sounds like when Darcy would like move the mic or like shift in bed or something. Like I thought that was kind of cool. It was kind of adorable. Cause honestly, I think one thing that I saw from or listened to rather from that entire experience was you can tell just how much they love one another. And that's adorable in this yeah. simple age. Adorable and gross. <laughs> um, Let's well. Why don't we why don't we dive right in? Um, so uh, this is Adam um, and TJ. Well, <laughs> Good evening. <laughs> well, well, I wanted I wanted to kind of I guess well I guess we'll have an announcement before each conversation. I don't know what we're doing. Basically, this is a an installment of Behind the Goats, um, <laughs> which may or may not be the the title that we actually go with um but basically this is a series of one-on-one conversations between um members and friends of helpful goat gaming a chance for us to kind of talk with each other about D and role-playing and their experiences with that so yeah good opportunity to get to know us outside of the D campaigns that we have going on in goats and dragons mm-hmm. and Helpful Goat Presents. Anyway, um, yes, this is Adam. Uh, I play Burbage in Goats and Dragons. And I played Silver Naran in our Waterdeep campaign. And I DM'd um, our game of Big Gay Yorks. Which was simply delightful. I will never forget that. That was so much fun. Yeah, and you were in that. Um, yeah, so so, and you can introduce yourself, although I yes. kind of spoiled it earlier by saying your name. Well, you know, I'll tell them again just in case. I am TJ, uh, so I um, play in the uh, same campaign um, with the character as Silver as Lysandra, the UNT wizard, and uh, I have guest starred on the Fates of Rin um, as well as Nehet. Yeah, um, you were our first. No, you weren't our first guest star. You were our second guest star because what was Hikari? Uh, yeah, Darcy. Yeah, that makes Darcy sense. Darcy joined us first as Hikari, but I I always really liked that about about Goats and Dragons having guests on to play. 
Indeed, it's kind of fun, especially with Hikari, because she definitely makes things a little more random. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, so for transparency's sake, um, I'm here sipping some uh, spearmint tea, and I personally did not prepare any kind of <laughs> notes um, for this conversation. Um, I think the goal is for it to be mostly just kind of unstructured and go with the flow. Um so why right. don't yeah? So why don't we start with um, just kind of talking about our our kind of overall backgrounds with D anD D? So when did you start playing? How long have you been playing? Um, how did it become a part of your life? Well, uh, let's see. It's been a while now. Oh my God, I'm ancient. Um, so I started playing with Lena. Um, Lena and I have known one another for years. She was, um, she is, I should say, uh, the voice of our dear Stormbringer mm-hmm. on the Fates of Rin and the fantastic Amelia on the, um, uh, what is it, a Waterdeep? Dragon yeah, Waterdeep. Yeah, yeah, I was something about dragons, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, so she and I um, played with a different dm uh way back when and uh that's how i got into it i actually was playing a another version of dnd um uh it was i believe uh version four how long ago was that was uh, it like in college or probably about getting close to eight years now so yeah it was uh end of college okay so you so that was your first time playing at all yeah, so I had heard of D&D previously. My dad actually um, has a first edition book lying around somewhere from the 70s. Um, and uh, I always growing up was like, Dad, you're such a nerd. You drew your own dungeons and everything. And then uh, when I got into d and I was like, oh, God, I'm a nerd, too. Um, but uh, so I had heard of D&D, but I hadn't played it until I was in college. Okay. And so, and it was just, you had some friends who were into it and they invited you to, to play. Yeah. So, um, basically, uh, as these things go, um, they needed more people for a group. I joined up and, uh, the DM was a very experienced DM. Um, although definitely could not hold a candle to Andy. Um, <laughs> well, who there, can? Nobody you know, can. I was going to say, um, but, uh, and we played in that um, uh, we played in that setting for uh, quite a while. I mean, I feel like that's how most people start with D and D. Somebody who runs a uh, a session out of their basement um, invites a newcomer along, and then they're hooked for life. Yeah, totally. But um, yeah, I was gonna ask you uh, how. I mean, did you play before um, getting involved with um, uh, the group that Andy's DM, the Fates of Rin? Not really, no. This is definitely my first real uh, D&D campaign was playing for Helpful Goat in the Fates of Rin. I had played kind of like one session of D&D back in 2014. And that actually would have been my first time meeting Andy, I think, and Galway, actually, Um I had just moved to Colorado for grad school and my friend Mark Rich invited me to play some board games um, in our building on campus, in our department. Um, 
they're having a board game day one Saturday. And so I went and I, we were playing board games. And then a part of it was they wanted to play a session of their D and D campaign. And, um, one of their players, somebody who I knew in, in the department there, um, couldn't be there. And so I think they texted her and asked her if it would be fine for me to play as her character. And, um, so I did, but, the the fact is i don't really remember much about <laughs> that first session um it was I, all the drugs i'm sure right you know those all those colorado drugs all i really remember like i feel kind of vague shame about that first <laughs> dnd experience because i do feel like i wasn't i don't think i was necessarily ready to to take it seriously. I think part of it is that I didn't like create the character. I was mostly just curious and I was like, Oh, um, I'm going to have this character. You know, I think I did the classic, um, the classic thing that, uh, that certain types of players do, which is like, I tried to have the character like make out with some NPC or something, which like looking back (laughs) and rolling my eyes at myself, I'm like, that was so stupid, especially like, it's not my character. <laughs> like it's this other person's character. And I don't think I like was, I just wasn't at the point of being able to understand why that, that might be inappropriate or like, like crossing a line or something. So like, that's actually kind of embarrassing. So actually when people ask me, like if I'd ever played D and D before, I usually say, no, <laughs> like this is my first time, and it does feel that way. Like it is my first campaign, my first D and D character with Burbage, um, and yeah. I mean that uh, you have nothing to feel ashamed of. The first one shot I ever did with Galway, his uh, his niece told me, "Okay, there's one thing you need to know about bards: do not run into the thick of battle, and then and you'll be fine." The first thing I did. <laughs> I ran into the thick of battle and the barbarian crit fumbles and kills me in his own party. <laughs> and for the rest of that one shot, I was just a storage unit for various axes that he would thwack into my body. Yeah. So, well, yeah, yeah. There, there's certainly uh, a learning curve with, with D and D, but I think, I mean, my sense is that it at its best when it's DM'd and sort of played, um, I don't want to say the right way, but I am going to say it the right way. Uh, the learning curve isn't too steep; that it that it's actually pretty accessible, and you can play and maybe make those kinds of mistakes. But uh, the nature of the game kind of allows for that, and you just kind of stick and move. Does that sound right, based on your experience? So I would even go one step further and say that I I know what you're on to when you say playing the game in the right way. It actually, uh, I would amend that to be playing the game in the right way for the group that is playing it. Uh-huh, because yep. it is so many different things to so many different people. And some people do play games where it's totally appropriate to make passes at NPCs or even other uh, player characters. It's, yeah. ki- it's kind of more about making sure that everyone's on the same page. Um, And that is a bit of a learning curve, but I feel like we are very blessed because uh, the groups that we play with tend to be a a 
very much on the same level as us uh, with our humor and things like that. Yeah. But also we sort of have an implicit understanding of, okay, you know, this is, this is what's fun and this is kind of what we should avoid. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Have you ever had uh, any experiences with being a part of a game or trying to join a game that wasn't the right game for you or the right group? So I wouldn't say they weren't the right group, but um, at one point um, I was DMing for a um, group of younger individuals like uh, late teens, early 20s. Um, they had This was kind of their first foray into D&D, and it just so happened that I was uh, free to DM them at that time in my life. And um, they all got super excited about D&D, and uh, they started writing their own campaigns. Um, and, you know, I thought it was great that they wanted to DM, especially since they had only played really one campaign um, as player characters. And I will say that some of those early campaigns that they uh, came up with, um, you know, I think everybody has to go through a trial and error stage. Yeah. But we, you know, when the entire party hates one another enough to kill their characters. <laughs> I mean, that that also, also often happens if you all agree, okay, we're all going to make some form of evil character, which is that can actually be kind of fun. Um, yeah, I've never done that. I, I am very curious about what it would be like to play D&D as an evil character or with a group of evil characters, or even, frankly, um, with a group where... That have that has really mixed motives and mixed um, alignments, so to speak. I think that would be really interesting. And like we, there's, we have that to a degree with um, with uh, both Fates of Rin and Waterdeep, maybe more so Waterdeep, where characters have differing priorities and motivations. Um, which I mean, w we could speak to that, like. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this is a really also, I, I watch a lot of YouTube D&D &D, um, kind of uh, discussions and things like that. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting to go into um, why alignment is definitely, uh, I usually come up with an alignment when I first create a character, but I oftentimes amend it as I go through the campaign. Because oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for instance, Lathandra was supposed to be lawful evil um, <laughs> in the sense that she was willing to do pretty much anything necessary in order to secure her goals. But her goals were within the purview of society at a larger level. Sure. But, um, I mean, it, it probably speaks more to me than the game when I have trouble playing an evil character with people who I really like in, in a game I really enjoy <laughs> because I just can't bring myself to be as duplicitous or badass as I'd like to be sometimes. And when you say people you really like, do you mean the players or the characters or both? Oh, oh both. But the players especially, because it's, it's a fine line, I think, when you're playing a character that is destructive generally. See, yeah, see, I, I, I that's really interesting because... I think that I would prefer to play an evil character with a group of people that I really like and respect. And as long as they like trust me 
and 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 understand and accept the fact that my character is going to behave this way. I think that would be a lot of fun um, if if to be a part of a group where nobody took the 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 extreme misalignment between um, motives and uh, and ethical orientations personally. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Although I feel like it would be hard to maintain in a longer campaign. Yeah. I feel. Yeah. 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 That's a really good point. And it's something that um, I've been taught. I have talked about with my friend KT who was in big gay orcs. They played uh, kill Nash and we've had conversations about, about this sort of thing. Because in their, they also play in a and d podcast uh, called Pork Fried Dice. And in that campaign, KT's character, Will, is very uh, different from the rest of the, the party and is very kind of distrustful of others and has his own... Uh, definitely his own priorities, his own goals that more often than not don't line up with the parties. Right. And so I, I've, I've told KT I'll be listening and I'm like, wow, like it's so interesting to hear like this ongoing tension between your character and, you know, these other characters, especially this one character Bathwack that will doesn't like at all. And they don't trust each other. And like, like that really intrigues me. And we've talked about that and how for me, for Burbage, he definitely started out as a distrustful character, somebody who really, you know, is going to be resistant to being a part of uh, this group, this party long term. Um, but that that shift for uh, for Burbage towards kind of trusting these new people in his life and accepting being a part of this new, you know, family, quote unquote, that actually happened for me a lot earlier than I thought it would. Yeah. Um, but, but it was something that I felt like it needed to happen to justify why are these characters going to like keep, keep hanging out together specifically why is Burbage going to stay with these people? So yeah, that's really interesting. And KT actually has some, you know, some thoughts about the whole family thing and how it, they actually think it's kind of a, a D and D cliche in a sense that the party has to become like a family. And my feeling is like, yeah, it might be kind of cliche, but it is also a really useful cliche and it makes sense that if you're going to have a long-running campaign that the the characters are going to they have to be close in some way they have to trust each other in some way just for the the narrative aspect of the campaign to make sense you know absolutely i also definitely think too that um if if we somehow were to magically transport um the uh uh personalities of uh, of D&D into real life. Uh, going through traumatic experiences oftentimes does bring people closer together. Right. 
Like, it, I think it's more just a matter of the human condition in a lot of ways, more so than the cliche, even. Yeah, that, that these characters, if they're going to be, like, going into combat together, and especially if there's a psychologically cruel DM, if they go through some really horrific shit together, it makes sense for them to to bond. Like, that. yeah, you're right, that happens in real life, too, so it makes total sense. And I also, I will say, during the campaign where... Uh, uh, the um, the campaign I was running for the uh, younger people I was talking about previously, we did all have um, evil characters to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told them, I, I wrote this character to be chaotic evil, which means your characters, if it's something they would do, are totally fine to kill her. Yeah. That's another thing. It's like, because honestly, it's one of, it's, I think it's, the idea of D&D as a narrative oftentimes, um, you know, implies that you're more invested in making the character interesting and making the story work um, on a structural level. And honestly, it makes sense to, you know, take in a bad guy out. And it's super dramatic if that bad guy happens to be someone who's been traveling with you. So it's not, yeah. I'm not saying evil characters are impossible to do or that I, I don't like doing them. I just think that it's it's one of those things where it's hard to travel within a group and think about a character's motivations for staying um if they were all along in it for themselves and just using the party yeah well it it certainly uh, makes it a bit trickier uh from a narrative perspective uh but i think that that would be a fun challenge to kind of grapple with. Um, and it's interesting. So for me, I think it would have to do with the extent to which I feel really personally connected to and invested in the character. And that is something that has shifted for me or has started to shift as I've kind of gained more experience. Although, frankly, technically, you know, I've only played two D&D campaigns so far, and one of those is unfinished. But with Burbage, I feel really personally connected to him and invested in him as a character. Um, and I think all of us in Fates of Rin feel that way to a degree about our characters. And I think it results in a particular kind of gameplay And I'm not sure I know how to describe that gameplay, except by contrasting it with in Waterdeep, I feel like it's it's felt very different from Fates of Rin for me because I think that deep personal connection from from it being like a long running campaign. I can't speak for the others, but at least for me, it's resulted in a much looser style of gameplay where I'm I'm not quite as precious or protective of of my character. Like I I care about Silver, sure, but I'm willing to take a lot more risks, both narratively and um, mechanically, in a sense, uh, because you know it's just kind of like this feels like a playground and yeah, this is a fun toy to play with um, this character of mine. Does that, does that make sense? 
Absolutely. And I think it uh, is down to one, um, the Fates of Rin um, players are all in their own rights, very, very good at um, getting into the heads of their characters and being them, you very much included. Um, and Andy's DMing style in that campaign, the sort of long form, I don't want to say sandbox because I'm sure that there's a overarching theme and goal, but yeah. the, the long form kind of unfolding details where you get information about not just backstory, but how the character is interacting with their backstory now that they've changed in campaign um, lends itself to gr uh, grow very close to your character because you almost have to, or, or else it wouldn't be interesting to play. And it certainly wouldn't be interesting to listen to. Yeah, that's a good point for sure. Um, have you, so is, does that resonate with you in terms of the different characters you've played? Like does your relationship with the character affect the way you play and vice versa? So generally speaking, um, I tend to be a little bit uh, overprotective of my characters because I'm one of those D&D &D players that comes up with a 30-page backstory and I'm like rifling through it and I'm like, can I cut <laughs> out the summer scene on the veranda and the DM will still understand <laughs> my love for, uh, for this person? Yeah, so like um, I am I'm definitely overly prepared with almost every character I do as far as backstory is concerned. Interesting. So yeah. um, I tend to have a connection to them, especially in early campaigns. That's very strong. I have had a couple characters in certain campaigns turn out that they weren't, I, I did not like the characters from like a personality standpoint. And I was a little more reckless with those, not because yeah. I wanted to kill them, but I definitely there, there was not the same level of like fear at losing all the development. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I also think it's fascinating too that uh, you know you and Andy both have experience as actors. Um, I was wondering, you know, even though you're relatively new to D and D, um, you definitely you crush the performances every time. I mean, Burbage, it's not easy to play a character that does everything possible, not so much lately, but does everything possible to make people not want to like him, and he's still incredibly likable. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to ask you, I mean, uh, what do you do to uh, develop a character's personality? Because uh, particularly the voices you do, uh, the other one that I'm thinking of is the old orc and big gay orcs. Uh -huh. I could tell that that was a... A, a very uh how should we say the uh the emotion behind that character was very real even though he was quite silly um <laughs> do you do anything special to prepare like um that's a good question i i don't know that i do much to prepare from a performance angle for those characters um and 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 definitely I don't I don't do as much preparation as you in terms of character design and like having a whole background um, kind of written up ahead of time. And it's something I've talked about with KT too, because they know everything about about their character will. Um, and I'm like, wow, I I just kind of come in with a loose sense of 
who the character is and maybe some key points in their history. Um, and so for me, who the character is actually tends to come about in the game for me because so for example i originally envisioned burbage as being a bit more serious <laughs> than he is um <laughs> so like if you listen to like the first couple of episodes of goats and dragons and you know get through my shitty audio quality of my mic like burbage is actually a lot more reserved, I think. And maybe that's because he's, he's, you know, distressful when he doesn't, you know, trust this group yet. But I definitely thought that there, that, that Burbage would be a bit more brooding than he actually ends up being for most of the campaign. And similarly, like silver, I, I, you know, I, I think I said this in, in the first or second episode of, of our Waterdeep campaign, like silver ends ended up being a lot dumber than I expected him to be, <laughs> um, which is awesome, which is funny and uh, fun to play. But so, yeah, that, that I know that that doesn't quite answer your question in terms of, you know, how I might prepare as an actor. Um, oh, it does actually. I mean, the thing is, it, it sounds like you let it grow organically. Um, and I will say that's actually from what I have experienced myself and also talked to with other DMs. Um, I, I think that's a excellent way to do particularly long form campaigns, because if you know everything about your character at a certain point, it's kind of like a, a book with no character arc um, for the protagonist. It's like, why on earth would you, would you read something like that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. It is it is funny that yeah, with Burbage, I knew that his background was that he had killed, you know, the father of his lover. Um and I well, I guess I'm realizing I don't want to necessarily get into spoiler territory because you're still <laughs> working through the backlog. Oh, oh so uh, I will say um, at the beginning of the Fates of Rin, uh, way back when, Andy told me every single one of your guys' secrets. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. so I know. Well, well, and that's well, that's the thing is one thing you might not know because we didn't know until like a ways into the campaign was like the specifics around. Eldon's death, right? Uh, and how how exactly Burbage killed him. Um, and those are details that we didn't nail down until, uh, I don't know, maybe tw 20 weeks at least into the campaign. And so there's, so at some point in the campaign, like <laughs> listeners might, catch that Burbage is suddenly behaving in a particular way around particular things. <laughs> Not to get too spoilery, but all that's to say that I enjoy discovering those things organically, like, like you said, and it might seem like a narrative contrivance, right? For, for Burbage to suddenly 
have this aspect of his of his history like playing a part but it also like i think it is informed by the fates of rin story of us like traveling we're traveling east toward cliff mill which happens to also be in the direction of burbage's home village hometown of diefield and so the closer he gets to you know his hometown where all this dark shit went down the more kind of unhinged he becomes and the more his past kind of comes alive and starts to you know cause problems for him does that make sense absolutely i mean it also does not seem like a contrivance because at a certain point if you are thinking of a dnd storyline as a narrative i mean it, it all narratives are at some level, I don't want to say all narratives because I'm sure there's some experimental writing out there that will prove me wrong, but most narratives are somewhat contrived in the sense that they are planned. Yeah. So it's, it is, it also speaks to <laughs> your guys' sort of feel for the characters and Andy's fantastic craftsmanship with the story um, that it still feels engaging. Um, plus, what's wrong with a little scandal and intrigue in a halfling village? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It, it does raise an interesting point though that not all well it goes back to what you were saying about how there's no one right way to play D, but it's just whether it's a right fit between you and and the 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 group the table absolutely right? absolutely and so not every game of D is going to be as narratively driven right or as driven by narrative concerns as as ours is right well well think of think about so um there, there's like a uh i forget what it's called but it's a organized D um uh sort of public uh event almost that happens at game shops where people go in and play D. complete strangers will go in and play D with a um dm they don't know just at game shops and it's definitely more focused on the strategy of combat and less focused on role play and interaction because a lot of the time you know you can only come for a couple weeks and then you have work or something like that so that also i think fills a need of um, particular kinds of players. And I will say too, I like the combat system in D and D. Yeah. Um, that being said, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I would enjoy the, that format of D and D where role play and narrative are secondary almost to the actual mechanics of the game. Yeah. I'm not sure I would either. Um, I'm definitely more drawn to the, the narrative and role play elements, but, but like you said, like there's something to be said for, for the mechanics of the game. Um, and while, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to be even close to an expert on like the rules of D and D. I do think that I've had some interesting experiences where the mechanical limitations of the game have actually resulted in really narratively cool moments where like, because of this particular rule or this particular limitation on this spell or ability, or even just, you know, even just the, the like a couple bad rolls in a row, I have to make my narrative and my role play fit the, the, 
the mechanical reality of, of the game that's being played. And that's actually resulted in some interesting discoveries, I think, and interesting moments where I'm like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense because my character has this on his mind. And absolutely. Yeah. I, well, and like this kind of goes back to what you were saying about your characters turning out to be sort of more humorous generally than um, you had first envisioned them, at least humorous to sort of listen to and yeah. observe. Um, I think D&D, and I'm not the first to say this, um, the person I am paraphrasing is a YouTuber that does the channel for Puffin Forest on YouTube. He's hilarious. But he talks about how D&D almost has a built-in element of humor because you are eventually going to whiff a dice roll or, mm. you know, be incredibly melodramatic and make a great speech and then go to cast your spell and you end up microwaving yourself. You know, yeah. honestly, I, and I think that's kind of why it's engaging is if you were to go to somebody and say, uh, come up with the coolest thing you can think of, they're going to be like, what? Whereas if you give them a set of parameters to work with it, and they're going to be like, oh, yeah, and I can I can do this, but I can't do that. So I'm going to substitute it with this. I, th I think that that's kind of the beauty of D&D is it gives you enough criteria to build and work within a set of limitations and be creative. Um, but you also, you know, you can get to be a real badass if you uh, do it long enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I hadn't considered that that angle of that it's inherently... A, a funny game or that it or that it has this inherent seed of humor just by virtue of being able to fumble. That's really interesting. And then I totally, you're absolutely right about the limitations offering creative structure. Um, that's what I, we would call thinking inside the box when I was teaching uh, about creativity and group interaction in my PhD program. But the, but yeah, like you're just saying, the idea that actually structure and restraints can enable creativity for sure. And if, depending on the DM too, if done seldomly, when you break the box, when something interesting happens, yeah, it can be all the more fantastic because of it. Yeah, yeah, totally. This reminds me of uh, my friend Tyler was telling me once we were talking about about D&D and he was uh citing somebody I forget who it is um but somebody I think probably somebody big in D&D who who basically describes D&D as what was it like an engine for storytelling or like an engine for collaborative storytelling specifically maybe and I don't know absolutely if, I don't know yeah. if engine is is the right word. I might be misremembering, but, but that rings true to me that, that D and D as a, as a system is definitely a box or a vehicle that enables you to, to be creative in storytelling and role play. Um, and I think that's really fucking cool. You know? I mean, I mean, I think it's fantastic that people get a chance to be performative um, in a setting that, allows them to be comfortable um because honestly it especially with first time dnd players or people who um haven't played a lot of the sort of role player narrative heavy dnd it seems weird that a whole bunch of adults are in a room 
pretending together at first. Yeah. Um, and then especially like when, when you have the crazies like you and Andy doing the voices and it's like, Oh God, what have I gotten myself into? I joined a cult <laughs> and you have, but it's a great cult and the Kool-Aid tastes great. So uh, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, I think it's a, a one of D and D's uh, sort of critical functions is it's a social game but the rules are almost you know it gives it gives people a permission to do things they wouldn't necessarily normally do yeah do you think that that is a part of why it's it's had this resurgence lately why do you think dnd has gotten so much more popular over the past decade well, I will say that um, gaming generally, particularly sort of board gaming and um, uh, non-video game media has gotten more popular from what I've seen. Uh, this is my total anecdotal opinion. I don't have statistics. Sure. Don't at me. But um, the the other thing is, too, I think fantasy is kind of a mainstay of, uh, you know, I say millennials loosely is sort of the age groups uh that i am in certainly because i i am 29 at this point um and younger i think fantasy has been something that has shaped our worldview i mean lord of the rings came out when i was what, 13 years old and yeah. it is i still stand by it as one of the most epic movies ever made and even people who don't like fantasy can appreciate that kind of um stuff and then of course game of thrones uh we're gonna ignore the last couple seasons but like yeah. uh, you know game of thrones i i think that D, &D itself has um is more of a uh how should we say symptom of a larger trend toward uh, being more interested in fantasy as a culture and i definitely think um that has to do with kind of the the media that we consumed in this country um just because, I mean, we we lived through the second Disney Renaissance, so, so the third, I don't know. Um, and we were all kind of raised with this cultural ethos of magic and otherworldly beings and things yeah. like that. Yeah, totally. Do you think that in addition to that, that there is a kind of escapism to it? And I'm like... I mean, whether or not the world is getting more complicated or bad or scary, like that is up for debate, I think. Um, but do you think there's any kind of like sociological, political, cultural angle to it outside of the media that we grew up with? Why are we drawn more to fantasy? Like, is it because we want to get away from the real world or which that's, I mean, even just hearing myself say that I think like, well, that seems kind of trite, especially when, you know, we just start, we're talking about how it's an engine for creativity, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. And actually I'd love to hear uh, yours on that question as well. Um, I personally think um, in my very sort of, uh, bad 
academic um, a Jungian way that the world may or may not be getting more complicated, but things certainly seem to get more complicated the older I get. Um, so there is an element of escapism there for me. Um, I also think that uh, humans are generally a very performative bunch. Um, and more so than ever, I think that instead of escaping, I think oftentimes the kind of personality traits that come out in D&D, even though they're within a frame that is fictional, often speak far truer to the person's character than, you know, say their day-to-day -day interactions with coworkers that they don't really know or people yeah. on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that definitely rings true to me. Uh, based on my experience. I mean, what, yeah, what, what what do you think? Like, I mean, is there an element of escapism there for you? And no judgment, because honestly, I mean, I just played five hours of video games today. I, I am totally <laughs> fine with escapism. Yeah. Don't be like me, kids. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I don't know. I think that, I think you're absolutely right that there is a very real... I don't know if psychological is the right word, but there's a psychological element to to the act of playing D&D &D and role-playing a character in D&D. &D. And it makes me think of dreams and dreaming, right? And the, the, the idea being that our brains dream at night as a way to kind of work through and process shit <laughs> like like emotional shit mental psychological shit stress um at least that's what i've heard right and so D, D seems like maybe similar to that that it's a a kind of dream state that we go into that in which our brains or our psyches or whatever can kind of process and work through shit away from our day-to-day -day lives and away from the real world um, I think that's interesting, and I mean, it's you know, I'm sh I wouldn't want to like overplay that and and assert that that's happening for everybody every moment of of playing D and D. Well, but but what are stories in human culture generally, if not um, frameworks to express ideas that we can't directly put into words? Yeah, yeah. In which case, you know, it, it's less a form of escapism and more. Um, just a different way of approaching the world and processing it. And expressing yourself. Because honestly, the way you approach the world and the way you interact with the world dictates a lot of the ways the world is going to react to you. And I think that um, when when playing D&D, &D, oftentimes I take into account uh, things that me personally, not my character, but things that me personally would do, um, because you you can't not. And on that level, it's it's fun sometimes to play a character that is on paper very different than you, because at a certain point you have to ask how you know their motivations, and you have to also ask how do you know what you actually want as a person. So there, there's that interplay there. I also think. Honestly, it's really, really hard to just come outright and say th certain things, um, even with the closest of friends. Um, when it's your character saying or doing something, 
there's that extra level of a uh, distance. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Which is also incidentally why it's hilarious when your characters break the fourth wall. <laughs> um, well, thank you. I, I hope so. I do, I do fear that that happens too often, <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I think you're absolutely right about all of that. Yeah, I like what you were talking about with respect to when you are playing a character very different from yourself, how it forces you to kind of consider what the character would do as opposed to what you would do. And the way you kind of describe that sounds like D&D actually, right, would be a really useful tool for anybody, but maybe specifically children, to kind of start learning skills of self-reflection, maybe, and self-awareness and kind of processing um, identity, right? I I think that, and that is something that Andy, I think, is really interested in academically, the the ways that D&D can be socially instructive, right? Absolutely. And I mean, one of the uh, the members of the um, group that I DM'd for um, that I mentioned earlier, he actually had played D&D in the military because mm. uh, I, I, he was in the Navy, actually. And there's not a lot to do on a ship um, when you're um, not on duty. Right. And he said, while the group he was in was not particularly his kind of uh his kind of how should we say style um it was it did fulfill a social need and if if you think about any institution that has a rigidly controlled guidelines for behavior it's the military so yeah like i i think that absolutely if you think about but the, you know if you think about it kids learn morals uh, from stories from yeah. Like they, you don't tell a child what is right. You tell a child a story about a boy who cried wolf and why. Yeah, and it's interesting that that story about the about playing D anD D in the in the military. I because I, you also I've heard about and read about um, people playing D anD D in prisons, and I've done some some teaching in in prison classrooms, and so I, I yeah, I, th- I think that playing D and D in those spaces is also similarly really healthy and constructive or can absolutely. be for sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It can be. And that actually speaks to an, another interesting um, component, which is sometimes uh, you, you have to be actually, I'd say generally, you have to be very forthright with the group as a DM and as a player um, with the rest of the group about what kind of experience you want to have. And that's not an original thought, but I really, really think that uh it's it's important to frame the the actual um, sort of group dynamic on a meta level as okay this is kind of what we all want out of this in order to make good narratives because we've kind of been talking about oh it's so narrative and it's it's a great vehicle it's like it's a great vehicle for us because I think we have a fantastic synergy and very similar goals yeah yeah totally and and we've had to have some conversations like that as as a group um for the fates of Rin, which have been really interesting um and but really useful i think when the group has to kind of reassess as players 
with the DM, like, well, what kind of story are we trying to tell? And what are there things that, that we're looking for or trying to avoid in playing? Um, and actually, I was going to ask you, because uh, I was going to say exactly into that point with Burbage, um, particularly Burbage, because you played him for a while. Burbage has some deep, dark-seated issues in his past, certainly. Um, there's also another level to the Fates of Rin in so far as that other people than the people who are playing and DMing are listening. Uh, have you ever, like, thought about doing something as Burbage and then you considered, oh, you know, maybe this isn't, this is, that's too dark or, like, I can't do something like that. Because that's always fascinating to me is where people draw the line for themselves. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I've ever, I mean, I'm sure that I have had those moments where I've had to kind of think to myself, okay, is this appropriate? <laughs> and usually, usually you might even hear me like on mic kind of thinking aloud like okay I, I think i want to do something but i don't know if i want if i should i mean you did very loudly pretend uh to be somebody else who was uh copulating with a horse <laughs> in Waterdeep. in what yeah. in in the water deep campaign and to great effect i cannot remember laughing as hard um <laughs> yeah that was that was incredibly fun that might be the most fun i've had playing dnd was in that, the water deep episode Herve and his dogs. Um, that was absolutely hilarious. But, but yeah, you know, with Burbage, I have been playing him for a long time. I feel very connected with him. And he does have a very dark past, although probably you could say the same for like 95% of all D&D &D characters. I, I, I will say, yeah, most D&D &D characters are... You know, they've been through a lot, man. Luckily, I don't think that Burbage has ever been so, so far gone that he, well, let me think. I don't know. It's it's a really good question, especially in season two. There have been times where Burbage has started to really go to a dark place <laughs> and i don't Absolutely. know i don't know when this is gonna release in relation to that so i don't want to give too much away but i think the larger point that you're that you were making is or at least correct me if i'm wrong um, but it seems connected to the idea that you know sometimes boundaries or lines can get crossed in in gameplay and that the relationship among the group of players needs to be strong and intentional and, and, and the players themselves need to be intentional about communicating ahead of time about, you know, what lines, you know, we don't feel comfortable crossing. And then when a line does get crossed, being able to say like, you know, I can see, you know, why that makes sense given your tragic backstory, but I personally cannot, you know, deal with. I think I think Galway was was giving me this example, like when we were planning for the game that he's 
going to DM here in a little bit in October. Because that is going to be a very, very dark game. Yeah. And incidentally, I still have yet to talk to him because I have character backstory ideas that may or may not come up in game, but I I still am definitely going to run run them by him because uh, you know I will I will go to a soul sucking meta dark place and yeah. I I feel like Burbage perhaps Burbage is not so dark um, to answer the the question you first asked me it's more that Burbage is lovable and he's also very difficult for the other characters not the the people playing the characters but yeah. the other characters to handle sometimes because he picks fights and goes off on his own and does rash things and so i i i kind of i wonder if like you guys are just on like the same level so that you don't even really have to talk about hey you know this is what i'm gonna do or yeah you know i mean i think that I, so I genuinely feel like I got really, really, really lucky with my first D&D experience, my first D&D campaign. You did. You did. But the thing is, it's reciprocal because you bring quite a lot to it. Well, and, and I, I appreciate that. I think that we all bring a lot to it. And but But that's one thing that I have really appreciated is that we didn't really run into any tensions like that for a long time and i think part of that is you know yeah like i could have been a lot more obnoxious as burbage right like like going back to what i what i said i was referencing like the moment where burbage kind of starts to trust the the characters a bit more it was a really interesting and powerful moment for me as burbage because he had this big fight with Charity. Charity didn't want to go back to Burbage's apartment as the guards were chasing them. Mm-hmm. And Burbage just kept insisting, like, no, this is the only, you know, the only plan of action that makes sense. And finally, this this comes to a head with them, like, with, with Burbage, you know, yelling at Charity in the street, just listen to me, trust me. And Charity being like, you have, you know, you have consistently failed to prove yourself trustworthy. And it's this really kind of tense moment. And I, and it was really enjoyable for me to play like Burbage, just feeling like kind of shamed (laughs) by charity and kind of shrinking back and being like, and kind of knowing or fearing or suspecting or all three that charity's right. Like Burbage, hasn't earned their trust you know because I mean? charity's role in the group at least um as far as i've listened to he is the conscience of the group in a way yeah in a, in a sense yeah maybe uh, maybe arguably stormbringer might be well i don't know i don't know who's the, who's the conscience St- stormbringer is the berserk pituitary gland of the group <laughs> yeah 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 but 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 so yeah then the the next thing that happens for Burbage then is that he, they do end up going back to his apartment and he goes up and it's not, it hasn't been ransacked unlike everybody else's rooms. And he finds a note from this bad guy that Burbage had made a deal with before the campaign even started. And the note basically implicates Burbage in uh, kind of, and not just the ransacking of the other's rooms, but in kind of framing them for certain crimes. And it's this note that is basically kind of a smoking gun in a sense of, yeah, Burbage is a 
Burbage is a bad guy and he's not, he isn't trustworthy. So or rather, like, rather he does bad things. And that right, sort of yeah, that but, moral dichotomy of he's still quite likable. And in fact, I think he's quite good in right. some ways. But, but in that, but in that moment, he feels like for him, it's like, I'm a bad guy, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was, and that was, that session ended with, with that moment of Burbage realizing like, Oh fuck. And so I had some decisions to make for the next session. Like, like what would Burbage do? <laughs> and, you know, in, in a sense, you know, part of me was like, Burbage is going to run Burbage, uh, you know, is going to run away. He can't deal with this. He can't deal with whatever tension's going to come up here. But on the other hand, I, I did need to make a decision about, well, it's, it's time. It's time for Burbage to actually go out on a limb here and make himself vulnerable or, or to lean into his vulnerability, you know, which resulted in like, I think some real relationship building between Burbage and Charity when Burbage like had to like confess to Charity, like, you know, uh, this happened. You know what that, I mean? That I totally agree with that. And it was, I actually remember that episode because it was so, um, it was charged in both a story way, but also just emotionally. Cause I, I think that, uh, it's, it's definitely, I think it speaks to, humans and people generally that like uh, we're less interested in somebody who is perpetually bad and more interested in somebody who's been awful and then has redemptive things that are going on yeah yeah and that is an example of of a moment where i could have easily had my character run away and split the party but i don't think that was the right thing to do it would have made it into uh, almost a, um, how shall we say, uh, instead of the story having a archetypal legend feel, it would make it a, another piece of fiction with, without deeper, a deeper sense of, how shall we say, um, not just storyline, but um, archetypal motivation, maybe? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Something like that. Uh, I mean, um, I went. I went to college. I paid for these twenty-five cent words. I'm going to use them <laughs> any way I want. So yeah. But 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 what's fun is that you know, and I know you haven't listened this far, but there is a point later in the season where Burbage does run away from the group, and in a really dramatic kind of way. <laughs> and, Burbage dramatic. He's <laughs> never dramatic. No, no. And that was a moment where, you know, Andy and I knew that Burbage was going to split the party. Galway and Lena and Darcy did not. And so that was, you know, we did kind of have to have a conversation afterwards about like, okay, well, what does this mean for the campaign? And there was like scheduling questions thrown in there too. But that was a conversation that we had to have is like, okay, well, this, this kind of throws us off balance. What does this mean that, 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 you know, that you've made this decision for Burbage to run away. You know what I mean? And well, and this is where I think it's almost not, a, not bad that your, um, you know, first uh, true D and D experience um, is uh, in the medium it is in, because a lot of the time that's a perfect way to work in somebody going on vacation in real life. If you're doing tabletop. D &D. Right. Yeah. 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 But um, 
yeah, no, I, I think it it's just interesting to me um, whenever you get a group that has fantastic synergies, but also quite a lot of, how should we say, uh, dramatic tension. There's always a balance that um, is fascinating to me to look at and examine. Yeah. So I talk, I've talked a little bit about, about Burbage, and I could talk for <laughs> ever about like Burbage as kind of a, a way for me to process like my own feelings about like shame and everything like that has been really interesting for me. But I want to ask you, like, is there an example of, of a character that you've played where, where you realized either like during the campaign or, or after playing the character that you were working through like personal shit while you were playing every single character every I, single but, but, one but, but, but the thing is i will say i'm a mess so <laughs> um hot mess but a mess uh the thing is i think that i i would not play dnd unless i could use it as a therapeutic vehicle that being said i'm not the kind of person that will you know uh, whine melodramatically at the group for three hours about how hard my character's life is because I, you know, don't like my job. But it has to be interesting for everybody else. Um, and it also has to work within the group. But there have been characters, too, where I I wrote them and then I realized, my God, I am one sick, twisted person. <laughs> I think my favorite, or the easiest, I suppose, to digest... Um, would be um, the chaotic evil character I played with uh, with one of my other groups. Um, uh, Lysandra was kind of a throwback to her, but it was a Yuan-Ti Theurge, so wizard cleric hybrid, um, that basically worshipped a deity that wanted the end of all things. And so all the motivations um, were based on this sort of nihilistic... Um, contempt for not just existence but particularly existence that other people thought was meaningful oh man um, that resonates so hard already <laughs> oh my god well and i will say it was one of the most fun characters to play because not only at that time in my life was i i was actually working a, a job that made me miserable um and i i wasn't sure where i was going um in life generally but it also it's really, really fun to sometimes let the destructive element of yourself have free reign within a controlled setting. And once again, that goes back to sort of the therapeutic aspect of D&D. Now, of course, you know, one has to be careful and it, not only for the sake of group enjoyment, but, you know, people have done crazy things when the fantasy goes too far. Um, <laughs> Just generally, not with D&D, um, but, you know, uh, cults happen and murders happen. But, like, yeah. Um, Careful. You don't want to perpetuate the whole satanic panic thing. Oh, I, I was thinking more like the Jim Jones and uh, Marshall oh, Applewhite. Right. Like the, the, like yeah. the real cults, um, well, not, the, uh, not the ones that uh, Jose Rivera made up in the 80s. Yeah. So can, so can I ask you, so playing that character, the, the nihilistic character who with the disdain for existence itself and for anybody who would would like dare to presume that their existence is meaningful was mm -hmm. that did you work through your own nihilism with that character like did it have an effect on 
you and your attitude toward the world afterwards? I, I will say that character ultimately ended up um, being, I won't say murdered by the party, but sort of left for dead by the party. And I think in a way it was almost satisfying because I think anybody who, you know, has sort of uh, has the darkness within them. And let's be fair. We all do. Um, yeah. I think, I think there is a part of us that absolutely knows that like, if you, if you let your worst um, personality aspects happen, people are going to leave you or betray you. And it's fitting in a way it, it, it fits an overall sense of a general moral narrative in life. Um, that being said, I, I found the act of playing that character very therapeutic. Um, I definitely, since I've played that character, am more aware of not uh, sort of group interactions, but also um, just how much of my own baggage I'm bringing to the table because I don't mind bringing my baggage to D&D, but I'm going to make sure it's a matching set with everyone else's. <laughs> a matching set. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I also think too, there are, we, we are very lucky in the fact that we play in groups where uh, we have had similar life experiences and we have similar opinions about sort of the state of things generally. Um, you mean like politically? Po politically, um, just, you know, I was going to say even just the course of humanity as a whole, but I also think morally we all are fairly similar and i say yeah. that because a lot of DD &D groups seem to be plagued particularly i don't want to blame this on game of thrones but particularly after game of thrones with a lot of really really not just sexist but like sexually violent themes yeah, yeah. um and i i've never ever had that happen in one of my groups thankfully but like I do think that giving into some of the darker aspects of your character, you know, that it's, it's fine. If you, if you're going about it in a therapeutic way, if, if you're kind of letting those things grow and ferment and um, you're making other people uncomfortable, which is also not okay. Um, you know, there is some there's something to be said about caution in doing that too. Uh, violence is the other one. Uh, torture in D and D and slavery too have have been you know they're part of the world that um, you know the worlds that D and D uses, especially in a lot of its pre written campaigns. Uh, sometimes it it's one of those things where I could totally see not um, using certain aspects of those because people don't want to hear about a character being tortured during what they thought was their time to relax. Right. Yeah, totally. And which reminds me that Monty cook games recently put out a consent in gaming um, guide for D and D. And I think always planning on us using that for this upcoming two shot that he's planning. And I think that's, great i think that's incredibly useful and i think it makes sense for for groups to have those those conversations especially because i've read like some of the horror stories of of D, &D where you know players are just doing these terrible things in game like 
and actually, I, 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 I do have a story about that. Now that I think about it, it was our first DM, Lena and I's uh, first DM. Um, he was a fantastic DM in some ways. Um, very, very organized, meticulous, uh, great with role play and voices. Um, however, uh, the there was one um, particular uh, part in the story where we had to go to a slave market, um, and there was a uh, knoll slaver. If you uh, if you guys out there don't know what a knoll is, it's like a hyena um, human hybrid almost. Um, and he was very very uh, how should we say specific about how it, he was describing. Oh, it, it has all these piercings and its nipples because it's a knoll and it has six nipples like a dog. And um, it, then he sort of went into like how it's actually a sexual slaver, so it trades sex slaves, and that was. Probably the most uncomfortable D and D experience I have had, Yikes, where it was yeah. like, uh, first I didn't know this this person very well, well outside of the group, but even if I had, it's like uh, you can still achieve the same story and even general feel of creepy without, you know, having to go to incredible extremes and make your players or make other players feel uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, which I think it definitely um, supports the the point, right? That you know these conversations need to happen. We we did like we did have to have one um, in the Fates of Rin, like during season two. Um, there's this really particularly dark moment that happens, and we did have to have a conversation afterwards as a group about um, well, how dark are we? going with this story because um you know that's not what i thought we were doing narratively and but it but 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 having that conversation not only resolved that um question for us i think it made us stronger as a as a group so it also oftentimes makes the story way more interesting than if you had just gone for the uh you know sort of easy grim dark um solutions that i think happen more so than they should um because honestly you can still describe the exact same scene but omit the details that aren't comfortable at least yeah. in my at least in my in my purview and even if even if like you you so you guys decided more so on just abandoning a theme because it wasn't right um i i still think that the act of processing through the creative uh, that I'm going to be redundant here, processing through the creative process like that mm. in sort of a metacognitive way. It's like, okay, how do we want to do this? Um, it makes for a much more cohesive story. Yeah. Which, which is a paramount concern for us since we are streaming our games and then like, and turning them into podcast form but i have to remind myself sometimes that uh, most D games aren't streamed or recorded for for podcasts so i wonder and, and which goes back to like not every game is necessarily going to be as interested in a in a narrative structure per se uh or interested in how should we say the same group even uh like this gets into another interesting issue of character death in um dungeons and dragons fifth edition um where some some old especially people who have played D D in the previous versions character death was fairly common if not 
completely expected. Um, whereas in D&D 5e, you can go through an entire campaign up through level 20 and only have that one character. Um, and so I, I think that there there is sort of an idea of narrative cohesion um, with it built into D&D 5e because it encourages you to think more so about uh, your character's motivations and who they are and c character creation is a real process. Ooh. I think I don't, so I, I'm not speaking from a place of experience or knowledge here, but it would seem to me that previous incarnations of D&D &D oftentimes did attract um, people who weren't less invested in character, but who definitely uh, the the way the mechanics were structured, it it was normal to rewrite up a completely new character and insert them into the group if your previous one had died, even ten levels in. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I've I've only ever played five e, and I hadn't considered that that the the differences in in the versions themselves would would result in different roles for narrative to play in the game so yeah that's a good point that with 5e character death is a bit easier to avoid and so it kind of facilitates deeper consideration of of a character as you know a character with an arc <laughs> and but yeah. it changes and grows over time that's really interesting i like that yeah because i honestly uh, i'm not i do not uh, mean to belittle anybody who just it straight up enjoys doing the mechanical things of D&D. If that's your bailiwick, you go for it. For me, it would just be a whole bunch of numbers on the page and rolling dice, if um, if not yeah. for the, the aspect of how has my how is my character going to use these nifty little things that um, I find in the books. Right, yeah. I was going to say, though, like, um, what is one thing that you have either heard about or like actually like listened to like on another podcast perhaps um, that you haven't done in D and D that you'd like to try. And it can be anything playing a different character class or like something narrative, like, or even DMing. I, I'm just curious because as a new player, I am fascinated to hear like where you would like your future campaigns to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I sorry to put you on the spot. No, no, no. Well, well, like I like I said earlier, like I think it would be interesting to play an evil character. Um I it's 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 weird to say th that I also kind of look forward to my first character death <laughs> like in a way. Like, because that hasn't happened for me yet. And so, like, that I think would be cool in a way. As long as it happened in a good way. But that's the, the thing is that it often doesn't. So I don't know. Well, with Andy as a DM, if, if um, it, it happened during one of his campaigns, I will say the, um, not including the one shot, which I completely fucked up. Um, the, uh, the character I was playing in one of Andy's previous incarnations um, of the world you guys are now in, in the Fates of Rin. Um, uh, he, it was a paladin, and my we were in a dire situation, and he was, uh, he was a paladin, so he sacrificed himself to save the rest of the group. And Andy 
very who very much is a world-class dm and a world-class storyteller uh reached out to me um because we ended on a uh, basically the rest of the group was running away from a horde of enemies and this paladin had sort of uh sort of braced himself against the oncoming horde to distract them um andy said okay so we can do this a couple different ways um if you want this character to be done that's fine but if you still want to keep playing him uh we're gonna have to come up with some interesting things um to not only cover his escape but um there's gonna be something that an extra set of challenges after that as well right yeah so I will say the DM, the DMs we have in Galway too is fantastic. Um, the DMs we have are very adept at if character death is something that narratively fits, they will make sure it's okay, but they won't accidentally kill your character, which is I think something more more common in previous versions of D and D, from what yeah. I understood. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, the other thing that I look forward to in D&D is getting more comfortable with with spellcasters and with with ma- the whole magic aspect of it because that's always been really intimidating for me and which is why like I started with a rogue um and a specific kind of rogue who doesn't have spells or anything um and even just playing silver like uh, as a paladin in waterdeep like he's not even a full spellcaster, right? Like there's like half. Uh, I will say actually you, you have the complicated bits of both worlds in, in silver. Cause even if you're not a full caster, um, you still have to understand the rules of magic in D and D, which aren't necessarily convoluted, but they're not super intuitive at first. Yeah. Um, and I think you did fine. All things considered it's more, I think it's a matter of experience more than anything when knowing when to pull out a ability and I pull them out at the wrong time all the time. And I've been playing D and D for, um, <laughs> for, for a fairly long time now. And it's like, you know, uh, I think it's kind of one of those things where if it's what a character would do, I can totally justify it. But yeah, yeah spell casting. What if, if you could play any spellcaster, which one would you try? I think I'd love to play a bard someday. Oh my god, there's so much. They're rock stars. Like, yeah, I think that aspect of it, like the performative aspect of the of the bard, um, sounds really fun to me. And in another life, Burbage might have been a bard instead of a rogue. <laughs> I, you know, uh, there there is a college of swords for bards where they learn how to um, juggle knives and do all the things that rogues do. Um, not all the things, but you know, it's uh, it's definitely something that I would recommend. Bards are one of my favorite classes because they're just ridiculously good at skill checks, but also you have a built-in excuse to be the face of the party, and I, I very much that's what I like to do. Yeah, I get nervous about being the face of the party. I thought before Waterdeep, I thought that Silver was gonna be that more than he is well what's funny with silver is that he he fancies himself the face of the party at times and he'll try like at least early in the campaign like he would always be like yes i'm silver naran um but it makes me as a player nervous because i do still feel like i'm 
I'm less experienced at D&D, and so I don't want to be in charge. <laughs> like, I don't want to play the character who is supposed to, like, know what to do in any given situation. Like, I, I feel much more comfortable leaving that up to Galway. You know what I mean? And in Waterdeep, you also, like you as Lysandra, often take a, a leadership role, um, and, and I'm more than comfortable <laughs> letting you do the that, thing you know? is though i think you're you're shortchanging yourself a little bit because i oftentimes think the interactions between silver at, when he was um you know sort of inserting himself as the face of the party and then the rest of the party as sort of a response saying that's not what we think but in their own ways yeah. um oftentimes it it made the story far richer and far deeper um because Honestly, like, I, I think the interplay of the characters is what's interesting. And there is a certain aspect of, yes, I, I kind of can feel out the characters that Andy writes because I, I've seen Andy's characters. But also, um, if, I'll uh, say, I, I'm not feeling particularly eloquent on any given night, um, I know that I feel comfortable with, like, saying, well, Lysandra would attempt to convince the person of this, things like that. Um, so it's more like knowing when I can sort of nail that eloquence being the face of the party and when it's just like, we're kind of going to bypass this because I, I got nothing. Or yeah. I'm honestly to squirm, squirm and I mean, Amelia is just fun at parties. Um, <laughs> but, but squirm was also a fantastic um, help too. I think it was a total group effort though. Like, you know, I've I've heard countless experiences of uh, people playing D and D with sort of the archetypal edge lord who creates the character that is just very very traumatized and he's silent and he's you know tormented and doesn't do anything and goes off on his own and sits in the corner. Um, yeah, and I, I I've never. I've never had that happen. I've I've always had a lot of engagement from all the characters. Yeah, even the, even with Vimeris, who was uh, like our version of an edge lord, like Jay played him perfectly as like yeah, traumatized, kind of this brooding masked figure, but also like really quirky and, yeah, the, and curious it, about the world and like willing to go along with things. Like I I loved the way he played Vimeris. Absolutely, and I I. I I'm going to take um, that point um, to say that I am not saying that characters who are dark and brooding and edgy are bad. It's just that if that substitutes for personality, that uh -huh. is bad. And yeah. the thing is, Vimeris is a perfect example of when your character still has, uh, you know, uh, things about them that make them unique and also very, very entertaining. Um, to observe yeah but you know i mean there's something to be said for like i think it makes total sense that new players to D, &D might start out with kind of simpler characters or more kind of flatter maybe archetypes or something but hopefully but like over the course of a campaign or with a more experienced playing D, &D I would say ideally like the DM and the the flow of the game itself would encourage players to kind of deepen their characters more 
You know what I mean? Ideally, absolutely. But I, I do think, once again, we have sampling bias here because we, we've we been spoiled. I mean, between the group we play with and the DMs we have, um, I I think we've dodged a lot of sort of the, the problems that sometimes are more common. Um, I mean, getting somebody to engage in D&D if, say, a spouse or a uh, significant other brought them and they don't really want to be there or like um getting someone who is only interested in combat into a storyline even the best dms i'm sure have it's it's hard to do if they're not willing to put in the effort yeah yeah that sounds hard and i i read threads about that all the time on on reddit on the dnd subreddits <laughs> Um, yeah, well, and, and, yeah. and I, I think that we, we're just blessed, hashtag blessed, that um, <laughs> we got that plus D4 um, to, to uh, we're, we all want similar things out of the game. And we also just very much want to be here. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree that um, I, I definitely have been spoiled um, and I'm very happy and and proud and um appreciative and hashtag blessed um to have been part of the fate of Rand and to be pulled into this uh this group of of D players i i couldn't have asked for a better introduction to to dungeons and dragons um andy is a fantastic dm although going back to um the spell casting stuff i have a confession to make here and I don't know if Andy caught it or not, but in our last Waterdeep session, I accidentally cast Channel Divinity twice without resting in between. And I realized afterwards, I was like, oh, that's not allowed. Oh, well, and I, I, I messed up on stream because I cast, uh, I, ca I thought I, um, uh, so I cast Invisibility, um, which is a concentration spell. And then I had Dragon's Breath up on Nixa. And I didn't realize that um, the spell effects, you can't have both of them up at the same time. That happens all the time in D&D. And I will say, as far as Andy's style of DMing, which is definitely, I, I, I very much enjoy his sort of the, the more atmospheric style a lot of the time. Andy uh, trusts us to know our characters. And honestly, if something is game-breaking, he'll say something. But for the most part, I mean that was an honest mistake. And I think it, there's almost no reason to really go back and rules nitpick. Right. Yeah. I think that Andy demonstrates pretty good judgment around, um, when to be flexible with, uh, with the system. And to be fair, he has a lot to keep track of too. So it, it probably just slipped his mind. I will say Galway is, um, he will let you know. Uh, oh, when I you are not, mechanically allowed to do oh something. i believe it i believe it <laughs> and that that is not a criticism it's uh it's one of those things where i i appreciate both styles because having someone who um who remembers things for me that i totally didn't remember is also very helpful <laughs> yeah yeah totally we should probably wrap this up most certainly but i've had a great time talking D D with you and same here. I will anytime, my friend. Well, cool. All right. That has been uh, Behind the Goats or something else. If we come up with a 
less vaguely pornographic name <laughs> name um but yeah thanks for chatting tj thank you for having me and like i said anytime of course all right and we will catch you all on the flip side or some other side depending bye have a good evening everyone this has been helpful goat presents behind the goats if you enjoyed what you heard and want to hear more check out our main podcast feed goats and dragons a dungeons and dragons podcast you can also learn more about our shared gaming projects at our website helpfulgoat.com follow us on twitch twitter and facebook at helpful goat and find us on youtube by searching for helpful goat gaming and if you like what you hear please do consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. We are a small independent game design firm and would really appreciate the support. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.